As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Every day you turn on the news and everybody's talking about what the president said, what the president tweeted, what the president's doing. What we're not talking about are the generations of people we're losing to opioids, are the generations of people in prison for violations or for not being able to post bail or for marijuana, which is now legal in so many states. What we're not talking about are the number of people that are going to move into states of Alzheimer's because people are aging. There's a lot of things we're not dealing with while we're distracted by the Trump circus. And how far behind are we going to be when he leaves? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I go back a long way with Anne-Marie Habershaw. Anne-Marie has followed an unusual and interesting path to high levels in American politics. She's built a career that's taken her to the senior leadership, usually chief operating officer, of important organizations like the Obama-Biden campaign in 2012, the Democratic National Committee, the DCCC, and EMILY's List. She's currently partner and COO of the progressive communications firm Bully Pulpit Interactive. Anne-Marie came to politics later than a lot of my guests, but parlayed her skills in accounting and business and problem-solving to become a political organization builder for Democrats. Because I built fundraising and compliance software, Anne-Marie and I came to know each other professionally at a sequence of institutions, and we've worked together on an anti-poverty nonprofit called Lever Fund as well. So I was very happy to have a chance to discuss Anne-Marie's career and hear her thoughts about politics, political organizations, and leadership. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Anne-Marie Habershaw at BPI. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Anne-Marie. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Ooh, quick biography. That's always a challenge. Uh, Anne-Marie Habershaw, and uh, you and I have known each other for for a long time, many years. You know, I like to say to people, I said I worked for the largest PAC in the country that elected pro-choice Democratic women. I worked for two of the three-party committees, being the DTRIP and the DNC, and I've worked on a congressional, two gubernatorials, and a presidential campaign. So I feel like I hit the hit the mother load there. So you're starting to get the hang of this politics thing? Yeah, you know, after all these years, I'm yeah. starting to get the hang of it. So can you go back even before that a little bit? 
I'm interested in how you take a career that ends up being the COO for a presidential campaign and and for a, a important consulting firm in the space. How did you first first of all, how did you prepare? What's your education like? And then how did you enter the political world? So I came into politics very different from a lot of people. I was 30 when I volunteered on my first campaign. I went to college, got a degree in accounting because I knew that that would get me a job after graduation. <laughs> and uh, that was the way it worked. And I really didn't enjoy what I was doing. But I always loved history, always loved politics. I mean, the first convention I ever watched was Jimmy Carter. And I remember being just bowled over by Barbara Jordan's speech at that convention. So I was always interested. And it was uh, the early 90s, 92. And I, you know, the country was in an economic turmoil. And I thought, you know, I should really think about doing something about this. I, I just wasn't getting out of my work kind of what I had hoped. Who were you working for as an accountant? Uh, I worked for a couple of different family businesses in the state of Rhode Island that all went through financial challenges. So I think that that kind of combined. I mean, people ask me what inspired me. And I say, you know, I had three very simple goals when I was, you know, a teenager stealing my brother's college book so I could think about where I was going to go. I wanted to live in a city. I wanted to do something important. And I wanted to have financial security, which makes it interesting that I would pick politics. So when I was about 30, I decided to get involved in politics and wasn't much going on, particularly in a Democratic state like Rhode Island. But I ended up volunteering on the Clinton campaign and I really enjoyed it. You know, I I loved what I was doing. I don't know if it was because I'd had more work experience than a lot of people that generally work on campaigns, but I showed up, was there when I needed to be. When things happened, I didn't get worked up about it. I just, well, let's just figure out how to fix this. What specifically did you do as a volunteer then? Whatever they asked me to. I mean, you know, the first night was just calling people to get them to come to the office opening. And then when I showed up the next night, they're like, oh, you're back. I'm like, yeah, I said I'd be back. So it was everything. And that's what they had me do, everything. Power went down during a, a time when Hillary Clinton was going to visit the state, which big deal because that never happens. And so how do you manage all these things and people? So I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And what I noticed was there were a lot of really smart, smart, passionate people who could raise money, who could organize, who understood the political strategy. But there weren't people who could like make everything work together. And so that first got me thinking about, could this be a career? Like, could I take this and turn it into a career? So what was the next step in turning it into a career? Well, the next step was trying to figure out how to learn more about campaigns. So I uh, found another campaign to volunteer on. Uh, there weren't many in 93, but I ended up in Virginia. Uh, Mary Sue Terry was running against George Allen. And I just showed up every day and did whatever they asked me to do. And after a couple of weeks, the finance chair said, who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> and I told her and she said, you want to learn how to fundraise? And I thought, sure. And so I, I did that for a few months. And then that turned into a paid job working for a candidate for governor of Connecticut. And then that turned into who a was the job. Who was the candidate? Uh, Bill Curry. He was the state comptroller. And then I left there and ended up out in Arizona 
working for Karen English, who was elected in the year of the woman in 92 and was up for her first re-election battle in 1994. So had you put aside your career as an accountant to do this full time or were you doing yes. both? Yes. Yes. Yeah. There came an opportunity for a change. And so I essentially had some savings and used that to kind of be able to do this. Change your life in a new direction. Yeah. And, you know, I figured I didn't have much to lose, right? I could always go back home. And, you know, the 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 biggest thing, and this is what I tell people all the time is the most important, I met people in each of the campaigns that connected me to the next person. So the people I met in Rhode Island introduced me to other people at Emily's List. And that's how I went into Mary Sue Terry. And then then somebody I met there, new folks in Connecticut, because that's where she was from, and got me hooked up with the Bill Curry folks. And then when it was time to make a change there, this connection again said, well, why don't you talk to these folks in Arizona? And frankly, I'd never been west of Pennsylvania. So getting in my car and driving to Arizona, you know, having to be there in three days was was an interesting adventure. And that's kind of when I hear this story normally, it's early 20s rather than early 30s, but you're doing the same route that a lot of people did to get into the campaign You're doing the same route. Get out there, do the campaigns. I did fundraising because I thought, well, if you can fundraise, you can do anything. I realized in the 94 campaign that fundraising was never going to be my my thing. And then, frankly, in 1994, the Democrats got completely wiped out. I mean, it was- Terrible year. The House- people that are no longer with us anymore that that went out and i thought okay well i don't have really any money left (laughs) and (laughs) democrats just got wiped out and i have the least experience of probably anybody who's working in politics what am i going to do now and so i i finished up the campaign drove back across the country ended up coming here to uh, stay at a friend's house who uh, had put her her honeymoon on hold of politics and she connected me with emily's list and they were looking for a controller and so the strange thing is like here i was this person with a degree in accounting who'd also done fundraising on campaigns and they thought well that's an interesting combination that we usually don't see it's a perfect fit actually yeah so i called them and they were pretty busy it couldn't really talk to me right away but then they called me back and said well what are you doing right now and i said uh trying to find a job. And he said, would you come in and help us with our FEC report? I said, sure. I'd never done one in my life. I thought, how hard can it be? Those were the days of paper, not to date myself, but it, it was paper. So I literally took FEC reports and just studied them and figured out how it was done. And that's what that was my job interview with Emily's List, was helping them with their year-end FEC report. And they called me and offered me the job as a controller. And I, you know, that's my start. And in a funny way, it's both of our start in, in that I had written software to, to do FEC reports. And for people who don't know, it's Federal Election Commission and, and uh, campaigns have to say all the money they spent and all the money they raised and who it came from and who it went to. But there also is a lot of quirks to that. A lot of quirks. Yeah. And, yeah. And what, what are some of those things that you remember? Oh, well, I mean, I remember with you and I what the biggest challenge was, was, you know, it's it's not a small thing setting up a campaign. I mean, forget about today with the campaigns. But even then, it's not a small thing if you've never run for office to set it up. So I remember when you had your software and I thought, well, it's really intuitive to use. And the big thing was the service. 
You know, you had a set monthly amount and people could call. Maybe you probably underpriced it. But it was, you know, this was a great opportunity to combine my education, the skills I gained in the private sector as an accountant with my love of politics. And over the time that I was at Emily's List, you know, things changed so rapidly in politics. I grew beyond the controller, you know, because every time there was an opportunity or they were going to take on another program, I wanted to, like, figure out, you know, how are we going to do this? So figuring out what the rules were in the states where they wanted to support women running for governor or figuring out, you know, how do we do this? Or how, I loved the puzzle of figuring out how to do things and do things better. So there, I just ended up taking on more and more. It's also where I um, decided to take the CPA exam, which I'd never done before, just to kind of see if I could pass it, which I did. And also then at the end of my time in Emily's List, or close to it, I decided to go to business school and get an MBA. You went to Chapel Hill, right? I did. Yeah. I did the executive program, which Ellen Malcolm had to sign permission for me to do it because it required you to be out of the office every other week and for different long periods of time. And so it was actually worked out perfectly because, you know, I had been there for over four years and was probably as high as I was going to go there. So this was a really great opportunity for me to prepare them to transition to somebody else and also to get my MBA, which just is probably one of the best educational decisions I ever made. A lot of people who are attracted to politics are much more attracted to the being a candidate, communication side. It's not that many people whose personality is a good fit for operations or for logistics or solving problems like this. But that gave you a lot of running room, right? It yeah. did. And I think the key for me and why I did it at so many organizations and, and was asked to do it. I mean, I didn't seek out these jobs. They People came to me was because not only did I have the experience and the understanding, but my sole focus was I've got all these amazing people that know how to help a candidate win, whether it's raising money, getting voter support, whatever. How can I help them make their life easier? So I always focused on how can I help them be more efficient? So I always felt very engaged in what everybody was doing. And, you know, I never want to say no to people. Now, obviously, if they want to do certain things, I would have to say no. But it was always like, let's not say we can't do that. Let's figure out how we can do that. And so I was very focused on that. And frankly, you know, my last campaign, it was $1.2 billion. So we are not talking about small amounts of money. That's a big budget. Uh, we're not talking about small enterprises. So you have to not only have the technical skill to be able to do these things, but you also have to be able to be strategic and think ahead and, and anticipate a lot of different things that could happen. One thing I didn't ask you is when you were recounting that you entered politics, you went to work for Democrats. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the reasoning there? Why did you choose that part? Oh, you know, I think so many people end up starting out where their family comes from. My family was very much, you know, Northeast labor Democrats. I will say some of that has changed over the years, but it felt like a party that spoke to me, still does. Uh, on most days. And so it was really just more about big picture. To me, the concept of figuring out how to 
help other people and help provide people with opportunities was just appealing. So everything on the Democratic platform, particularly protecting women's right to choose and supporting members of the LGBT community, I mean, it's it's always been um, the party for me. When you were at Emily's List, can you give me a sense of like what was most exciting during the time you were there. Some, some oh, like what was, everything. What, what, you know, what, it, what what was what kept you there for a while? And everything was be, exciting. Be concrete about a few things, maybe. First of all, it was probably one of the best work experiences I have ever had in my life, and will be. And I've counted; I've had twenty-one jobs uh, in my wow. life. It will be in the top three. Hmm. Uh, it was an incredible environment. A lot of really strong, passionate, mostly women. Everybody worked really hard and had high expectations for each other, and we pushed each other. So I always feel like Emily's List helped me figure out how far I could go and what I could accomplish. So that, one. Two, there are still so few women in office. But being there to help elect some of these amazing women, you know, whether it's Debbie Stabenow or Julia Carson in Indiana, I mean, just being part of that history, in many ways, and then seeing kind of what these women collectively have been able to do. And, and that's really been a theme in a lot of my political choices. I went to the DCCC, which was not my intention because they were going to have their first woman chair, Anita Lowy of New York. And I thought, wow, if I'm going to go do this, I want to support the first woman chair. And I think if I had to look back and say, you know, what are some of the things I'm most proud of? It certainly would be helping elect the first woman speaker and Nancy Pelosi, particularly when we know how much got done when she was speaker and Barack Obama was president. That impacts so many people. So, I mean, Emily's list was just exciting from day one. It was it was super hard to leave. I'm still close to so many of the people that I worked with there. But it's just, you know, when you know that every day you're going in and this is what I tell people about politics. If you want to impact the world, one of the easiest ways to do it is find a really incredible person that's running for office or run yourself and help them get elected because they will have impact that you actually can't really imagine or see. What did you think of working with Ellen Malcolm? She was great. I learned so much from Ellen Malcolm and from Mary Beth Cahill. Probably got some of my best advice. Ellen was hugely supportive of me when I decided to get uh, my MBA. I mean, I was going to be out during election year. She didn't blink. She was always supportive. She wanted people to get better, to reach, to grow. And so... Not true for every boss. No, not true for every boss. I've been pretty lucky that. And Mary Beth gave me... Uh, in very, very short sentences, probably some of the best advice I've ever gotten in engaging with people. So, For example, what? Uh, you know, I remember one time she said, you know, Emery, don't let people know what you think before you've opened your mouth. Amazing. Like, you got you to more of a poker face, you know, like you you wear your, you wear it on your sleeve. You know, sometimes you got to, you know, and uh, and things like that. But always very supportive. I mean, I always felt that about the environment uh, at Emily's List. I've, I've worked for some pretty amazing, incredible people, if you think about it. What was the D-trip experience like for you? That was different. So I was there three cycles, uh, all very different. The first cycle was with Nita Lowy, uh, and it was the last cycle of soft money. Not I don't know how many of your listeners will remember Bikra, 
campaign finance reform back in 2002. It was crazy. A lot happened. I mean, 9-11 happened. So many different things happened during that cycle. Working for NIDA was great. And then uh, I worked there for Bob Matsui in the next cycle. And that was really the first cycle that we couldn't raise soft money. So people talked about how the parties were you know, not going to be, they're not going to be useful anymore. And they're going to be as well. Uh, turns out that that was not true as we suspected. But so it was super interesting to then look at what rules were changed and then figure out, well, how do we still raise money? How do we still have impact? And we tried a lot of things in 2004. We tried first party independent expenditures doing field. Boy, it's really hard to do independent expenditure field. But we tried a lot of things. And um, Nancy Pelosi was a minority leader then. So that change had happened. And it was really about kind of digging in at the D-trip and figuring out how can we make the organization run really effectively and prepare. And, you know, you don't think about this when you're doing it, but when we got to 2006 and we were post Labor Day 2006, and it did feel like all signs pointed that we would win the House. I don't think people realized it was that late before we really felt that it was going to happen. It felt like all the things we had done in 2002 and 2004 had prepared us for that moment, you know, and that's the thing in politics, you've got to be prepared for a shift and a change. So when people come to me and say, oh, should I go do this race? It's kind of a tier two. I said, tier two today, tier one tomorrow. Things can change like in a, in a flash. And your job there was, was chief operating officer. So what is that job? And what do you think were the significant accomplishments? that? Well, I started that as a CFO. And then they, to be perfectly honest with you, they wanted to keep me and I wanted to grow. And so they said, well, let's make you COO, which was all the same things I was doing as CFO plus even more. So in general, my focus at the DCCC was always on, and my focus has always been this, people, money, infrastructure, uh, legal, engaging with making sure everything we're doing is appropriate. And then everything else, all of the above. I always tell people that, in the party committees in particular, the COO's job is all these things plus everything else that nobody wants to do or can't figure out. There's a bit of a notion out in the hinterlands that the DCCC is, it sometimes has a heavy hand in congressional campaigns and engaged in picking winners in primaries and things like that. What's your viewpoint on their role and how they how well they do it? You know, it's funny because sometimes Emily's list used to get you know, tagged for that. You shouldn't get involved in a primary with an incumbent. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. You got to take opportunities when they come and people make decisions and maybe they're not always right in hindsight, but I'm, you know, I'm not as offended by organizations jumping into primaries if they think that they can help position a candidate that can win in the general election. I mean, at the end of the day, and this is what I've always thought about. I mean, I went from Emily's list to the DCCC. And as you know, Nathaniel, the DCCC supported a lot of candidates across the country that had different viewpoints on a lot of issues. And not every Democrat is pro-choice, right? So, you know, people say, well, how can you go from Democrat pro-choice women to then helping people who may be from other states who are for this or that. And I said, because my focus is on the prize. The prize is how are we going to elect a Democratic House and how are we going to have a Democratic Speaker? 
I think I'm a little bit more pragmatic when it comes to that. Don't get me wrong. Personally, sometimes I've been like, oh, why are you going to do that? But I, it doesn't bother me the way it does. I think other people. So what what led to you leaving the D-trip and going over to MNR? And what did you do there? I had been at the D-trip for three cycles. Nita, Bob Matsui, Rom. It was six-year grind. I mean, I loved every minute of it, but... I felt like it was time for change. It was interesting because in 2006, um, two candidate Republicans went down. George Allen of Virginia, who I remembered, you know, that first campaign, Mary Sue Terry losing to him. And J.D. Hayworth, who was the person who beat Karen English, who I worked for in Arizona. And I remember walking through the, the hallway one day and saying, George Allen's done. J.D. Hayward's done. My work here is done. I can move on. Um, <laughs> Revenge. And, and, it, and it, it felt like a natural break. I had other opportunities to go do some other political, but I felt like I needed a break. I needed a break from politics, wanted to try something different. I had never imagined. I mean, remember, I was getting my MBA, my last cycle at Emily's List. People were surprised that I went to the DCCC instead of going in some like corporate job. And uh, then I ended up being there six years, which I didn't expect. I thought I'd go in and do one cycle and, and be out. So I felt it was just time to try something different. And what was your experience at MNR? What did you learn there? I learned that I wasn't done with politics. So I was there two years. Another great group of people learned about professional services firms, which really came to help me when I came here to BPI uh, a few years ago. I learned that I could do whatever I wanted to do. It didn't matter what the industry was. I had a certain set of skills that I brought to the table and they were going to be useful, whatever sector. And in fact, in my career, I've gotten to work in the government and campaigns and in the private sector. So I've been able to go through all three. But that was the cycle that Barack Obama was running for office against Hillary Clinton in 08. It was interesting to be sitting on the outside and kind of watching it all. But at the end, I realized, uh, I'm not, I don't, I don't think I'm quite done yet. And so you end up at the DNC as yeah. chief operating officer. Well, yeah. the interesting thing is first, what ended up happening was, you know, President Obama got elected. And I think as people remember, he really didn't have a downtime his transition went into full mode inauguration planning went into full mode and they had this whole campaign they had to shut down so the first step was i got asked if i would help shut down the campaign because a lot of the other people that had worked on the campaign were just like they, they had to you know divide and conquer right. so and that was bob bauer that had asked me if i would take that on so i did that I didn't really know a lot of the Obama folks, but that's how I got to meet many of them. That's where I first met Andrew Bleeker and did that for a while. And then it just kind of happened that then they were like, well, would you come to the DNC and be the COO? And I was like, okay, why not? You know, what's it like to work for the Democratic National Committee? Super interesting. Having worked for two committees. And knowing that on the Democratic side, the committees tend to, you know, kind of butt heads at times. I never imagined I would work for the DNC. But when I did, I just learned a lot about the big picture party apparatus. It was really interesting getting to know some of the state parties. 
understanding the voter file and what was happening. And that was when it was just really coming together where there was this national voter file. And I, I think the DNC does not get the level of credit that it deserves for like a lot of that work that has been done. And it's a huge value to the party. It was interesting. There's a lot more people involved. You have the House, you have the Senate, you have all the, the, the state party members, DNC members. There's a lot of constituencies. So you're always balancing, uh, balancing a lot. And we made a lot of changes when we were there, a lot of infrastructure changes that, that needed to happen, particularly to prepare for you know, what we knew would be a reelect of a Democratic president. And you move into that reelection effort, yeah. right? Yeah. Setting up a uh, billion dollar corporation that's going to be there for a year and a half or two and, yeah. and then disappear yeah. and have to be shut down again. A pretty monumental task. Yeah. I was fortunate that in doing the shutdown of the 08 campaign, I really got to see all the pieces and all the parts. And it's so different. The first from a reelect, reelect is so different. There's a lot of advantages. You know, we could negotiate longer term things like leases and phones and things that cost a ridiculous amount of money. But there's also higher expectations. I mean, people saw how much was raised in 2008. Negotiating for salaries was, you know, more of a challenge and holding a budget was more of a challenge. I remember I, I, I went and looked at probably six or seven different offices in Chicago, tried to be very incognito, found one. It had to have some work done to it, but everything has to be timed. So for those who don't know the rules, the minute you state that you're a candidate or spend a certain amount of money, it triggers a timeline and you have to register with the FEC and you have like 15 days. So basically the minute we would sign a lease where the clock was ticking, so literally, you know, you say, well, you're the COO. I said, I landed at O'Hare. I went to the lawyer's office. I called to make sure we were good to go and I could sign the lease. I signed the lease. I ran to the insurance broker, got a certificate of occupancy so I could give a go ahead to somebody to drive a truck to a CDW warehouse outside of Chicago and get like computer equipment because I needed to start getting set up for people coming in so we could be ready for the launch in 15 days. So it was very funny, like literally going block to block to block and you're by yourself. And then, you know, the next day somebody else comes and somebody else comes. So when you say you start at the beginning, you really do start at the beginning on these things. I noticed that uh, campaign fundraising emails out of that often had your name on them yeah. or maybe always. I yeah. don't know. How did that transpire? Well, they're always looking for different voices, right? To communicate to people. You don't want to hear from the same person all the time. So, you know, a lot of times we were focused on, we need money to do this. We need money to do that. We need money to do this. So they came to me one day and said, Hey, we have an idea. We want to send an email from you. And I said, okay. And so we started working on different things and, and, and different topics. And I didn't write those emails. I always tell everybody, but I always looked at them and it was always important. They were in my voice. You know, I never say the word folks, so please don't ever put that in there. That was fun. And the biggest fun of that was the responses that would come in from it. I got an email one day from somebody who said, imagine my surprise when I woke up this morning, I had an email from a high school classmate I hadn't seen in 30 years. And then I realized 
two million other people probably got <laughs> it too. Relatives calling me and saying, hey, did you send out an email today? Because somebody stopped me on the street, you know, and said, who's that? You know, my aunt who lives in Rochester getting a call from a friend saying, I didn't know you went into politics. And she says, oh, no, that's my niece. That's not me. And then the, the hate emails. I actually have a book that the correspondence team on the campaign put together of the 50 greatest hits for my 50th birthday from somebody in response to dinner with George Clooney saying, hey, how about you have dinner with me, to people saying other unfriendly things about where I should end up in some federal penitentiary for doing certain things. So, Has, has that ever crossed over into real life, not online life, that anyone has, your association with these campaigns has been problematic? Uh, no, no. I mean, I generally wouldn't associate with somebody who, I mean, I have, I have friends who are true conservatives, but there's a respect for each other and what people choose. So it's never, it's never, it's never happened. To what extent in the role of COO, do you get to partake in strategic decisions? I mean, I, I remember as a technology officer for a presidential some frustration mm-hmm. that even though I was probably not qualified for it, that no one ever asked me <laughs> like, uh, well, what should we be saying here or something yeah. like that? Yeah. I mean, do you get to bend the ear of David Axelrod or talk to president Obama or, you know, what, how does that role, what's the edges of that role? So, you know, these campaigns are massive and everybody, and especially on this campaign, everybody had their responsibility. I had 93 people who worked for me on that campaign, not all direct reports, thank God. And I was in charge of the budget, which was the $1.2 billion, the vetting, you know, the reporting, travel, correspondence, I mean, it, and everything above. I'm, I'm probably forgetting half the things. Yeah. So first of all, I think a COO or CFO or a good one is always involved in strategy. It's not going to be like, I'm not going to sit and say, hey, David, I think this should be the messaging for this, you know, TV ad. But if something's happening related to the finances of the campaign or sorry about that, yeah, I'm going to be engaged in that. But I think figuring out how to take a budget and work with all different kinds of teams to prioritize and figuring out it's all strategy. Everything, because you you do so many things on a campaign that are the first that you do them. And, you know, the Obama campaign, they raised so much money online. And so how can we do things differently? How can we do things more efficient? So I have have never been one of the COOs that didn't feel like I wasn't part of the strategy, because to me, you can't can't do the whole enterprise without the underpinnings of the enterprise. One one strategic decision in a campaign is how much money to have left over. And of course, that's a a matter of estimating because you don't know how much money is coming Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to leave money on the table because you want to make sure you win and things are unpredictable. But you also want to have money for shutdown, Mm -hmm. maybe money if there's enough to to help the party, et cetera. How did you think about those sort of decisions? And and you had that maybe in two two times for national campaigns Mm -hmm. to some extent. How did that play out for you? Well, I mean, you know the drill. If you win... You can raise the money if you end up going over, and it's okay to have money left over. But if you lose, you do not want to have left to send on the table. So it's it's really thinking about 
everything out. I mean, we started working on what the cost of winding down the campaign would be months before election day. And we ended up, we had debt after 2012. It wasn't the goal. It wasn't the plan. But sometimes things happen. So you take your best estimate of what you're going to need and you come up with a number and you hope it is on target. And people have criticism of it. I mean, there's been campaigns on the Democratic side have been criticized when they've lost and left money on the table. And I'm sure there was criticism of the Obama campaign that, you know, we had raised all that money and had debt. How do you go about setting a budget for an enterprise that large (laughs) when I assume that you have everybody in charge of every department wanting their fair share of it? There's, there's a lot of strategic questions about where the money gets applied, how many staff get hired in every mm-hmm. state, everything like that. Huge decisions land on the person in charge yeah. of the budget. Well, there was a really good process, first of all, in place um, on the campaign to do that. One, you can use past history to come up with a gauge of how much you think you can raise, whether it's direct mail or online or for major donors. So you got a good fundraising team. They can do their estimates and see where you're going to be. And in that campaign, every head of every team was asked to put together a budget. So as you can imagine, when those budgets all came in and they were added together, it completely dwarfed whatever we thought we could raise. So then that's when the decisions have to be made. And it's really about what is the campaign going to prioritize. And obviously, the Obama campaign really prioritized the organizing, which is key, and technology which is key. So not any department got everything they wanted. Everybody always needed more. Everybody always wanted more. But once the decision was made about, okay, this is what we're going to do until there was a change, then the goal was just working with each team to make sure they could get what they needed out of what they were getting. And what was the the team that made those decisions? Is that... Mm -hmm go to the campaign manager? Does that go to the candidate? Does that go to consultants? Is that, was that you? How, how, how did you make those calls kind of collectively or individually? The campaign manager was the ultimate decider with advice from an understanding what the president would want. You know, the other thing about a reelect versus a first time is like the candidate's job is to be president of the United States first. So unlike 2008, where Senator Obama could be, you know, in and out, you know, he wasn't able to be there. And we understood that. But, you know, those decisions were really made by the campaign manager really is the ultimate responsible party for like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And you partner with that person. I mean, we had a really strong team of people at the top of that campaign across every team and people would work together. And that was the really good thing about that campaign is even when people disagreed, they work together. Because at the end of the day, if everything you're doing isn't about winning on election day, then you're wasting your time. So everybody worked together. People fought for what they wanted. Decisions were made. And then it was about holding everybody kind of to it. And also, knowing if there was more money coming in than you thought or less money coming in or there were major changes that were going to be made. The reputation that seeped out of 2008 and and, mm-hmm. and I think to 2012 as well was the no drama. Mm-hmm. Does that fit with your experience or there was plenty of drama? I mean, I, 
campaigns are just such intense vehicles. You're working all the time. You're not eating right. You're away from your family and friends, many of you, particularly when you've got these campaigns that are in other cities like Chicago. So was there drama? Probably. But it didn't go out of the campaign. Like that's a reflection of the candidate. That is absolutely. And you you see that now, frankly, you know, with our current president, how people who work for that individual behave is totally a reflection on the candidate. And I don't remember President Obama, you know, I always thought of him as a listener, as thoughtful, as making decisions, as being comfortable with those decisions. I mean, he didn't have time for drama. So how would we ever have time for it? Did you have any interaction with him personally? What's your sense of him as a person? Uh, I've had a few because I worked on the campaign and then in the administration. I mean, I, I think he's a really decent human being. I mean, a lot of things were accomplished in his time in office, some of them that have had tremendous impact on a lot of people and will continue to into the future. A lot of people that work on presidential campaigns or campaigns at other levels parlay that into jobs and administrations. Mm -hmm. Had you thought about that before? You did end up in the administration. but What was your route there? And and tell us a little about what you did. It takes a lot to shut down a campaign. So I ended up staying and, and, and working on that for a while. And to be honest with you, I did not spend one second thinking about what I was going to do after the campaign. You just don't have time to do that. So when the campaign ended, I knew that that was my last campaign. I was like, oh, what do I do now? I hadn't even thought about it. So I hadn't really thought about the administration, but then just started to talk to people. So I should think about it. And then different opportunities came my way and different agencies with things. And I ended up being the chief of staff at OPM. It was a great experience. I'm so very for people glad who don't know the initials, OPM. Office of Personnel Management. Right. What does yeah. OPM do? Oversees the federal workforce, the civilian federal workforce. Right. Yeah. And so the chief of staff job there, what what's the import of that? Well, the chief of staff is to help the director of the agency move things through and get things done. And in addition to dealing with personnel, you were dealing with personnel from background investigations right through to retirement because federal investigative services was part of OPM as was the retirement area. So it was a good size agency, a lot going on, super interesting, really a lot of smart people. So it was a great experience to be, it was a hard job. I actually think that was almost a harder job than the the campaign. Why? Um, Because there's a lot of balancing of things. You know, you have these amazing civil servants who go to work every day regardless of every administration to do a job. And then you have an elected individual that comes in, their people come in and they have an agenda and what they want to do. And there's a lot of work to kind of moving that forward and getting to know this whole new group and relationship building. It was interesting. It was a lot to learn because I'd never, ever worked in the government before. So I, to be honest, and this isn't a knock on it, Uh, But I was used to being in environments where if I saw something that wasn't working, I could go ahead and change it. That's not the way it works in the government. There's a process to go through things. And I understand why. It's a very big operation. So that was hard. That was probably the hardest for me because I'm very much, I see something that's not working right or something that needs to be corrected. And I'm all about how do we get that done? 
without going through a ton of layers of things. What's an example of something that was a challenge to change? Just it's, it's, it's not so much change, but do. So here I was somebody who I had negotiated contracts and campaigns and other places. I could not ever get involved in any contract negotiation because I was a political appointee. And I understand why they have those rules, you know, doesn't make it any less frustrating. OPM gave out a lot of hiring authority for different agencies, right? So you know that they need X number of people to deal with Ebola at CDC and the process you have to go through, like there's a process to go through to get those people released and get that hiring authority over there. So sometimes it felt like you had to go through a lot of layers to do it. And you're sitting there saying, okay, we got to get this done. It's just the way it was. It's not necessarily criticism. It's just not something I was used to having been in organizations where saw something they didn't like. Maybe I would fix it. Maybe I would just decide to fix it or I'd have to ask maybe one person say, Hey, you're okay if I go ahead and do this. It, it, it's, it's a larger bureaucracy. If you were on some commission or something that was, you know, reinventing the government or reforming this or that, do you think there would be, are there changes that could be made to that that are, that are low hanging fruit or fairly obvious or well, is it I really know. tangled up? I don't know if changing how we hire or retain people in the federal government, if there's any part of that that's low hanging fruit. I do think there is some amazing work going on across the federal government and all of these agencies. And I think we've got to figure out how to get more people interested in a career in the civil service and make it less difficult for them to figure out how to get into the civil service and then figure out how to keep them and be competitive with pay. I mean, in this area in particular, I mean, you have a need for really strong CIOs and CTOs in almost every federal agency where you're competing with the private sector on pay and there's limits on how much the federal government can pay. So I think really thinking about where we are, and I I think this is true for all workplaces, we are in a different place of how the work world works. And I don't think necessarily everything in the civil service has kept up with it. So how do you make those changes, but also keep to the founding principles of the civil service? That is, it's going to be fair, it's not going to be politicized, and that you're going to get the best and the brightest in. Because there's there's amazing things that are being done by people every day in the federal government that I wish more Americans realized. It, it does seem like the actuality of the excellent work done by people working for the government and the reputation, especially occasioned by candidates who run down the government, who campaign against their own mm-hmm. government, yeah. are, are really at odds. How, how do we improve that for, for civil servants? Well, I think we have to improve it for everybody. I mean, I think the tone of the politics today is, I mean, we spend all our time yelling at each other and criticizing each other instead of listening and having a conversation and figuring out how we're going to come together and get something done. And I think it's really a shame when we have people running all over the country talking about Washington, 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 and the government, and the government. When we have, you know, I said, like, there's from the Forest Service to NASA to the Center for Disease Control to HHS to the Department of Transportation, you got people that every day are getting up and doing an incredible job. 
And to listen to that every day is got to be demoralizing. It's wrong. It's just. But that's a function of how everything works today. Everybody's yelling at each other. You know, everybody's mad at each other. Everybody's trolling each other. Um, it's it's pretty exhausting. Well, talk to me about your next move, which put you in the office that you're in right now. Yeah. Well, so I was leaving the administration. I was really spending a lot of time figuring out what I wanted to do. I was in some interview processes for an association, another organization. I was literally walking down the street one day and there was Andrew Bleeker walking up the street with Ben Clark. The CEO yeah, and founder CEO here. and founder of BPI. And he's like, what are you up to? I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what's next. And he said, we should talk. And I thought, okay. And I thought, yeah, I'll never hear from him. You know, he's good about keeping his network, but sometimes there's a delay. And I got back to the office and I had an email from him right away. He said, no, 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 I really want to talk and you have breakfast. So it was probably 72 hours before he said, do you want to come do this? He knew it was good for him. <laughs> yeah, he knew it was good for him. And, you know, when I decided to, uh, when I was going to leave OPM, I was really struggled with what to do next. And I got a really good piece of advice from a man who was the White House liaison. So every agency has a White House liaison. Uh, Michael Grant, I think he was at the time the oldest White House liaison. He had worked in the Carter, the Clinton, and the Obama administrations. Uh, he retired uh, when President Obama left. We got to know each other really well at the time at OPM. Just He was just like one of those guys to give sage advice. And he said... I think you should spend more time thinking about what you want to do than thinking about what other people expect you to do. And that turned out to be a really, really, really good piece of advice because a lot of people are like, well, you should go run something bigger. We should go run something. And I always wanted to kind of run something on my own because I've always felt like I'm kind of the number, I've been the number two. And so I was interviewing for a lot of things that were running this and running that. And I just kept coming back to this and thinking about how much fun it would be. One, I, I think the world of Andrew, I think he's one of the smartest people I know. Two, it is an industry that is changing, like you blink and it's changed. Summarize in, in just a sentence or two, what, what is that Bully Pulpit does? Well, when I came here, I thought of it as an advertising agency. You know, now I think of it as a communications agency. And a political communications agency. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we do corporate work yeah. as well, which yeah. I think is important. But I just like the vibe, you know? I like the people that worked here. I thought this would be a lot of fun. I thought this would be a place that I could really come in, bring my skills, and really wrap my hands around it and get to know everybody. Like, I know every employee that works here. I know every fellow that works here. In some cases, I know where they went to school. I know something about their life. It's going to get to the point we're growing so fast before I get to the point where I won't have that ability anymore. But where can I go in and really see how I can make change and where I can be a real partner for somebody. And so it just, the more and more I talked to them, the more and more I talked about it, it seemed like the, the, the right thing to do. And here we are almost three years later. And, and so what are you in charge of here? Everything. Yeah. So I would say that I run things day to day, whether that's involved in new business or marketing or people we have CFOs and director of people operations, all of that. So overseeing all of that. But it's really to make sure that everybody every day can get their job done and do the tools. So 
I never know what my day is going to be. Like I come in and I have plans. I do check-ins with all the senior staff and speak to them regularly and really think through what the staffing is, what the client needs are. But I could be thrown into writing a proposal or doing a pitch for a client. It's, It's still that you're responsible for all these things and then whatever else comes your way. How, how many people work in here now? About 120. And you're a partner. You've become a yes. partner in the yes. enterprise. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So it's yours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I always feel that way about everything I do. It's probably a good thing and a bad thing. But yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. We've grown a lot. We bought an agency. With Andrew, you could walk in tomorrow and say, guess what? I found some I want to buy, you know, and then you're like, okay, well, my uh, my next few months is now a little bit different than I thought, but that's fun. I want to ask you a couple questions about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you witnessed this historic 2016 campaign from outside of it a little bit more so. What do you think happened to our country? What what talk a little bit about your lens on on what happened? Well. First, I, I, I want to um, say that I feel like I've seen so many historic moments in politics and people will ask what's kind of the proudest achievement. And, and I really have to go back to helping elect the first woman speaker, particularly given everything that we were able to accomplish, healthcare being, I think, the most critical. This last election, I feel like it's been coming for a while. There is definitely a discontent and a separation in this country. I feel it's very much focused on haves and have nots. And so was I surprised that Donald Trump won? Yeah, I was as surprised as anybody. Anybody who says they they thought he was gonna win, I'm like, I'm gonna question them on it. But I think there's just a lot of uncertainty out there in the world and people thought, you know, why not? Let's, Let's try it and see what happens. Now, I think there's some voter remorse for some people, but we'll see. We'll see what happens in the, in the next election. What's your opinion about Trump voters? I know some, you know, I think that for a lot of people, it is easy to put everybody in a bucket, right? And say that all Trump voters are X or all Trump voters are Y. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think there are people who just did not want to vote for Hillary Clinton for president of the United States. And there could be a lot of reasons for why that is. I think some people are like, doesn't matter who I vote for. It's not going to change my life. So let me go with this person. I think there's some people who are very much aligned with who he is. I think this is the biggest challenge we have. We are so quick to judge. And the minute you hear Trump voter, there are certain connotations that come with that. The minute you are conservative, there, you know, there are a lot of conservatives who did not vote for Donald Trump, did not support Donald Trump, and have been very vocal in there. So you you cannot just automatically paint people a certain way. And I know Trump voters that I don't know why they voted for him. I'd love to spend some more time talking with them, but they're certainly not racist. How they feel about what's happened since, it's a different story because we've seen even more. But it's, um, I don't know, to me, it's, it's more scary than anything else. It's like, how did we get to this point where we put this person in office who just doesn't even have any basic decency for other people? It's not where he stands on some issues. He just doesn't have basic decency. And so I don't know what happened in 16. 
if we reelect this person in 20, I'm really going to start to be more worried about where we are. I think we have a decent chance of reelecting him, unfortunately. One of the things that I've struggled with since he was elected is how much to worry about him. And when I talk to people, there's kind of a range from people who are persuaded that he's determined to go down an authoritarian road, that he's eroding our norms, that he's going to undermine democracy, that he's a, you know, that he's a real threat to become Stalin or something like that. And there's other people I've talked to who are, who are not fans of his, perhaps, but they think the institutions are going to contain him. He's generally acting like a Republican. He's a little erratic. Maybe he's a little corrupt, but he's not. He's just a businessman from New York, and he and we're going to be fine, you know, like in the long run. Where are you on that spectrum? I think both of those things are true. I don't think one is true than the other. Look, I, I think eventually we'll be fine, but I do worry about how far behind we're going to be after four years of this. Every day you turn on the news and everybody's talking about what the president said, what the president tweeted, what the president's doing. What we're not talking about are the generations of people we're losing to opioids, are the generations of people in prison for violations or for not being able to post bail or for marijuana, which is now legal in so many states. What we're not talking about are the number of people that are going to move into states of Alzheimer's because people are aging. There's a lot of things we're not dealing with while we're distracted by the Trump circus. And how far behind are we going to be when he leaves? And that is what worries me, because while this all is going on, other countries are moving ahead. And so where is that going to put us? Where is that going to put the citizens of this country? And that's what worries me. It's just the amount of time we spend on this. But I think both of those things are, are true. And I also thank God that we have term limits because we know that eight years is the most. But can we recover from that? You've spent uh, a career as a female in increasingly high levels of responsibility what would be your wisdom now to if talking to younger women in in who are trying to climb in those same ranks what you know we live in a pretty complicated age mm-hmm. me too and and just changing roles that that are not done changing and you know talk a little about your experience and your and your thoughts there well i get to give a lot of younger women advice every day and it's really uh i enjoy it Like if I could spend more time doing that, I would. I try and give people very practical advice about how to navigate through the work world. One, the thing I I do like is that younger women today have much greater sense of empowerment, I think, to speak up when things are not being done right. And I think that's key. But a lot of my advice is related to negotiating salary or when you're in a room and somebody doesn't let you finish or takes your idea or how are you going to do that? And I really say, you've got to own that and you've got to step up and you've got to grab that moment back. When do you think you learned that and how? I, I think that I probably learned later. The one thing I was pretty good about most of my career was money But remember, when you're the CFO, you see what everybody makes. So I would usually say to the people who are working with, remember, I'm going to see what everybody makes. So let's make sure we do this right. And I would do my research and my homework. So 
I mean, I asked my first boss ever for more money and his, one of the things he said was something about, well, you don't have a family. This was like in the eighties. I'm like, well, that's really not relevant. And by the way, do you feel that way about your daughters? And he's like, good point. Give me more money. <laughs> so I always apparently felt empowered to speak up about that, but really it's, you know, women, I, we are about getting things done. We are about moving the ball forward. And I, and not that men aren't as well, but I think we do in a different way. Like I like to make everything work. I'm not worried about who's going to get credit for it. But what I try and give them advice is do your homework, know what you want, be clear about what you want, set yourself up for success. Don't look at a job description and think, oh, they need 10 things and I, I don't do one of them. So I can't apply for that job. Like go for something, stretch for something because you don't need to have all 10 things on the job description. So it's really about being bold is what I try and advise them to do and then try and get them help if they want it. You know, if, you know, they maybe want to be better presenters or be able to speak up more, how can I get coaching for people and how can I do those things for people? You know, we're in a time where, and, and in a lot of respects, it's what my podcast is about in a time of mobilizing a resistance to the current administration and trying to elect a new Congress in 2018 and hopefully a new president in 2020. And there's a tremendous amount of activism that's flowering, but the party isn't entirely aligned or centered in on a message. You have a chance to, to say to the head of the DNC or to the candidates, what, what should we be doing right now? Like, what, what do you say? Wow. Shocker that the democratic party is not aligned. <laughs> we're, we, we we know what we don't like, but yeah. we have a lot Wait, of different things that we, we that Look, we disagree on. I love the fact that new groups have sprung up, especially encouraging women to run and supporting to people to run. And I love it. There is room for everybody. There is room for the party committees. There are room for all of these groups. And the real thing is we all have to figure out what is the space that we're the best at and how do we go through it and support each other. I find no benefit to people criticizing the other. There is a role for the Democratic National Committee. There is a role for the Democratic Senatorial Committee. There's a role for the DCCC. There's a role for all the other groups that have sprung up part of the resistance. There's a role for Emily's List. There's a role for people that just want to get involved. And it's like, we all got to move this together because if we don't move it together. What we're going to end up with is more of what we have now. And, and that, a greatly diminished country, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And so to me, it's like, I don't agree with everybody I've ever worked for. I've worked for a lot of elected officials. I don't agree with all of them on everything. But the point is, what is going to happen if I can help them get across the finish line, right? And we are going to be better off, you know, God knows how many people are going to run for president on the Democratic side in 2020. But we are going to be better off as a nation with a Democrat in the White House than who we have now. And so we have to figure out how to all come together and get on and get on board. What are the characteristics you'd like to see in a Democratic candidate next time? Uh, uh, well, I'd like the next president to be a woman, <laughs> for sure. 
No, I, somebody whose overall philosophy is about lifting people up instead of taking people down. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There are so many different ways to do that. We've got a lot of challenges in this country. Some of them we already talked about in this. How are we going to prepare people for work that's coming down the road for the future? Like we're not spending time talking about these things. So somebody whose philosophy is I'm going to respect people. I'm going to listen to people. I'm going to try and do what I can do to lift people up. And that is what is important to me. And I I don't feel that we really get that on the Republican side. It doesn't feel that way to me. It's been really lovely to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? No, God, we could talk forever. I think we could go a couple days. Yeah. Much appreciation for your time. Okay. Thanks, Nathaniel. That was Anne-Marie Habershaw at BPI. She's at bpimedia.com. Bully Pulpit Interactive is a marketing and communications agency that works for companies and causes. I'm glad that we have Anne-Marie's wisdom and experience on our side. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.